good morning. How are we? Awesome. I'm excited to be here today. I don't know, Sundays, you know, as we prepare for Sunday, it seems like there's a lot of pressure and anxiety to make sure everything goes right. But then once we're here, everything's okay because God's here. And, uh, and I enjoy being in his presence. And uh, a time of worship, I would just, it was a refill, it was a recharge for me. Just thinking about him coming back and putting all these problems that we wrestle with each and every day away. You know, that's, that's the day we hope for and look for. Um, my name is Joey. I'm the lead pastor here for those of you that are guests with us today. Like Jason said, we consider our guests VIPs, very important people, because we have a philosophy here at Vertical Life Church. We believe everyone matters to God. There's a song we used to teach our kids in Sunday school back when Sunday school was a thing. It went like this, Jesus loves the little children. You know that song? Sing with me. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. You know that song, what I'm talking about? Well, that's an eternal truth. God loves everyone because everyone matters to him. And, uh, and we're thankful that you chose to spend some time with us today. If you didn't get your swag bag on the way in, definitely stop by the VIP table on the way out and pick that up. And that's just our gift uh, to say thank you for spending some time with us today. Uh, today's message is part two uh, uh, of a message we began last week. We've been in a series for about a year now going through the Gospel of Matthew, looking at uh, God's word to us from Matthew, and we've been in Matthew chapter 24. We'll be in there somewhat today. We're also going to look at several other scriptures, so if you have your worship guide with you, I encourage you to take notes, jot some things down, because we're going to flip through the Bible quite a bit today. But uh, last week, we began looking at the timeline for the end time events. There, there's this kind of mysterious period of time everyone for thousands of years has been looking for, and that's called the end of the world. What is that, and when is it going to happen? How do we know the end is here? These are things that the disciples were asking Jesus, and he began teaching them in Matthew 24. And so we began to look at the timeline for these end-time events through the word of the Lord. And we started comparing Jesus' timeline, what he gives as a timeline, to the description God had already given us through the prophet Daniel in the book of Daniel. And, uh, and as well as in the book of Revelation, John's book of the Apocalypse. Most of the time when you think of end time events or the end of the world, most people think of the book of Revelation where all the, the crazy things happen. I, I call that the Bible's acid trip for end time events. It's just wildly crazy, all the different things that John sees and, uh, and experiences there. And so if you, uh, if you want a good scare, go ahead and read the book of Revelation uh, sometime, especially late at night around 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. That, uh, that's perfect. Uh, but uh, we started looking at the different timelines and comparing and see how they lined up. And, uh, and we discussed that there are really three basic views for the end time events. As, as you, know, you know, people in church don't always get along or don't always see eye to eye on everything. I didn't know if you knew that. Uh, sometimes people have a different opinion, and there have been many theologians and scholars that have studied the end time events, and they've kind of created these different views on how this is going to happen. And so we, we talked about the three main views of the end times. There's the, the pre-tribulational view, there's the mid-tribulational view, and the post-tribulational view of the end time events, and with the most common view being the pre-tribulational view. And that view basically suggests or says that this event called the rapture is supposed to happen first, 
before any of the other end time events take place. And that's kind of like the indicator. That's the catalyst or what begins the countdown clock for the end of the world. But last week, as we simply just looked at what the Bible says, the verse by verse, and, uh, and we read Daniel 9.26, we, we read right from the Bible that the rapture wasn't the starting point of the end time events. That's not what the Bible says is the indicator for the end time events. Rather, it's the treaty that this king that we call the Antichrist signs with many people. And so we had to take the rapture off of the beginning and try to figure out where it comes into play. And so what we know right now is what we've looked at scriptures as the signs or seals that uh, John talks about in the book Revelation, they begin to unfold, and at some point the Antichrist signs a treaty. And when he does that, that begins the clock of this seven-year period called the tribulation. This is what leads up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so our biblical timeline right now thus far as we've been looking at our study basically goes like this. The treaty is signed. The signs and seals are underway. Halfway through that seven-year period, the Antichrist sets up this sacrilegious object in the temple of God. And after that point, he begins a severe campaign, even increasing his persecution. During that period of time, God rains down judgment on the earth, leading up to the second coming and the Battle of Armageddon. This battle is a battle that happens with the world's armies against God and his angels as Jesus is returning to the earth. And at that point is when he destroys the Antichrist and Satan, binding him up uh, for a thousand years. Jesus begins his thousand-year reign on the earth, leading up to one final battle and the end-all judgment that puts an end to wickedness, sin for all, leading up to the eternal kingdom of God and eternity forever and forever and forever. So this is the biblical timeline that we've discovered thus far in our reading. And so as we were beginning to close our, the message last week, and if you weren't here last week, you can catch up with us online on our website or through our podcast on iTunes. Everything is available for you to catch up. But as we closed our study last week, I asked the question, was there another timeline in the Bible other than the three we looked at last week that could uh, shed some more light on the events in Daniel and in Matthew 24 in the book of Revelation as it is connected to the pre-tribulational view of the rapture to either clarify exactly when the rapture comes or the location of the rapture at all if it's not prior to the tribulation. And the answer is yes, there is one more timeline offered to us in the scripture. And it is not John, it is not Jesus, it's not Daniel, it is Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle gives us a timeline, and we're going to read his timeline and see how it coincides with Daniel's vision of the end times, Jesus' teaching of the timeline, and John's revelation in the book of Revelation. So Paul's timeline is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is speaking to the church in Thessalonica, and in chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians, Paul begins his word to them, and he says this. He says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we are going to be gathered together to meet him. And so here, Paul, right here in verse 1 of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, he's saying, I'm about to tell you about this second coming when Christ is going to return and this rapture thing, this gathering thing, the, the thing that happens when we meet him. I'm about to break it down for you. I'm about to tell you about his coming and how we're gathered together together to meet him. And what's interesting here is Paul kind of puts 
first the gathering in his list. He lists the, 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 the second coming first and the gathering second. And usually when uh, the writers of the Bible are writing, what they name first kind of places the importance of the object over the second. And so here Paul, listing the coming of Christ first and the gathering second, lists them kind of in importance. And this lines up with Matthew 24, as we read, as uh, the disciples were asking Jesus Christ about what's going to happen, they asked him, what are the signs of your coming and the beginning of the kingdom? And so it lines up perfectly with that question, that the coming of Christ is the most important, and this gathering, this beginning of the kingdom is next important. But also Paul mentions the coming and the gathering together as if they're a singular event, which is unique, and that the gathering is implemented at his coming so that we're gathered together to meet him when he's returning. Those are important things to pay attention to. Uh, verse 2, Paul says, Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them. Even if they claim to have a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us, don't be fooled by what they say. And this is important. He says, For that day will not come. Here's where the timeline begins. Paul is setting the stage. He's referring to this day, the end times, when Christ comes back and our gathering together to him. This day will not come until what he says next happens first. This is the timeline. He says, for that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God. That word rebellion in the original language is the word apostasia. That's where we get our English word apostasy. It refers to a defection of the faith or a kind of a turning away of beliefs you once held to be true. And if you remember from last week, Jesus said in Matthew 24.10 that in the last days, many were going to turn away from him. They were going to hate each other and betray one another. So thus far as Paul is beginning his timeline, he is lining up perfectly to Christ's teaching in Matthew 24. They're completely in sync. Paul continues, says, For that day will not come until there's a great rebellion against God, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. He's going to defy everything, or he's referred to as the defiler. He is the one that Daniel tells us sets up this sacrilegious object. And here Paul is kind of saying that that's actually himself. He's going to sit in the temple and claim himself to be God, declare himself to be Lord over the world. This is the same guy Jesus and Daniel refer to, the one we call the Antichrist. The same John in the book of Revelation refers to as the rider of the white horse in the first seal of Revelation chapter 6. So this is the same guy. Paul saying, the end will not come until this man is revealed. Verse 5. He says, don't you remember that I told you about all of this when I was with you? And you know what is holding him back, for he can be revealed only when his time comes. According to Paul, the Antichrist must be revealed prior to the return of Jesus Christ, prior to our gathering together or the rapture of the church, which is taught by Christ in his timeline, is also taught by Daniel in his timeline. So best, as we're looking at the timeline of the Bible and comparing it to the, the most common view, the pre-tribulational rapture view, the rapture cannot happen before the tribulation begins because Paul, Jesus, Daniel, and John have all indicated that the Antichrist 
who the pre-tribulationalists say isn't revealed until halfway through, um, the rapture, all of this has to happen after the revelation of the Antichrist. And so that creates a major issue, a major problem for the pre-tribulational view of the rapture. And so we all also have to consider that Paul starts his timeline by connecting both the rapture and the second coming together into one event here in 2 Thessalonians. So if you're still wondering, you know, if the rapture is before uh, the, the second coming, at best you would have a mid-tribulational rapture, which is another view of the church. But the Bible never in any place specifies a mid-tribulational rapture. You have to assume that by, uh, by looking at other clues in the scripture. But now, if we're to go back and look at what's considered the rapture verse, this is the verse that people use to describe this event in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 and 17. And we look at the details of what Paul tells us actually happens at the rapture and compare it to what Daniel, Jesus, and John uh, account for in the end times, we're going to begin to see the whole picture of this timeline come into focus. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, Paul says, We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So even here in this, this rapture verse, Paul is revealing that our gathering together, this rapture, is implemented as our method to meet Jesus Christ at his return. That's very familiar, very similar to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in Paul's other timeline. So here Paul reveals that at the rapture of the church, there's going to be some type of resurrection. Graves are going to open. Dead bodies are going to rise. They're going to fly up into the air. They're going to meet Jesus Christ. And then those of us who are the faithful and followers of Christ that are still alive will meet Christ in the air again at that time, immediately following or at the time of his uh, return. So the question that we have to ask is, does Daniel who was the first revelator, the first one to kind of give us a picture of the end times. Does he mention anything like this? Does he mention anything like this in his vision? And the answer is yes, he does. This statement is a parallel to Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, uh, and his reference about the coming of the Messiah. In Daniel 12, 1 through 3, Daniel says this. He says, At that time, Michael, the archangel, who stands guard over your nation, will arise. Michael is that restraining force Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6, the one holding back the Antichrist. And here Daniel's saying when Michael gets out of the way, when he stands up and he arises, then the, uh, the Antichrist is going to come to power. And so we're seeing right from the get-go, Daniel and Paul's timeline are one in the same. Uh, at that time, Michael the archangel who stands guard over your nation will arise then there will be a time of anguish greater than any nations uh, first came into existence. But at that time, every one of your people whose name is written in the book will be rescued. John calls this the book of life in Revelation. Verse 2. Many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up. Sound familiar? Yeah, that's what Paul just talked about. The dead in Christ are going to rise. Some to everlasting life. 
But here's something different. It says, some to shame and everlasting disgrace. Those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. So Daniel, in his vision of the end times, he's referring to uh, a rapture-like event, but he's also referring to two different resurrections. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the righteous or of the saints, but the second resurrection is that of the wicked. So if you remember a couple weeks ago, those of you who are called Vertical Life Church Home, we were in Matthew chapter 22, and Jesus in the Gospels is always getting confronted by different groups. People are coming up trying to trap him, trying to prove that he's not really who he says he is, that he's not really the Messiah. And there's this group called the Sadducees. They came up and they thought they were all sly and smart and, and, and based on their own theological understanding of the Bible, they, they didn't believe that resurrection could actually happen, that it was possible. And so they came up to Jesus trying to make Jesus look like a fool and they asked him this question. They, they, they gave him a hypothetical situation. They said, uh, there's this woman who married this man and this man had six brothers. So there's seven of them in total and the man died. And so his next brother, next of kin, married the woman so that they could carry on the family line. But then he died. And then the next brother. And then the next brother. And the next brother. Until all of the brothers had died. And then she finally died. And my first, my first thought in that is you would think after the first brother died, there'd be some questions. And then after the second brother died, you'd be like, okay, there must be some major insurance money exchanging here. You know, this, this is the thing. But, but this is the story that, that they gave him. And so finally the, the woman died, and so they'd all married her, and she died as well. And they ask him this question. They're like, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? The first or the last or the second? Whose wife will she be? And Jesus, knowing their, their hard hearts and knowing what they were doing, he rebuked them. And in his rebuke, he says one simple thing. He says, you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the word of God. You don't know what God's word says about this. And you see, it's right here in Daniel that God gives us this revelation about the resurrection. There will be a resurrection of the righteous and also the resurrection of the wicked that will happen in the last days. And so we have an Old Testament precedent and truth carrying through the New Testament. Now, if we were to fast forward into the book of Revelation, chapter 20, John, in his vision of the end times, also talks about two resurrections, and he places them in the timeline at the, at, after the second coming of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 20, 4 through 6, this is what John says. He says, Then I saw thrones, and people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be the priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Years And so John is also talking about the same thing Daniel talks about, two different resurrections. The first resurrection happens at the second coming, and it's the resurrection of the saints. This is when it happens. But the second resurrection, the resurrection of the dead, doesn't happen until after the thousand-year reign of Christ. So this is the second resurrection of, we'll call, of the sinners or the, the wicked. 
And again, don't judge me. My handwriting is horrible. Uh, but this is what John is saying. So John is telling us what Daniel has already told us in the Old Testament. There will be two resurrections. At the second coming, there's going to be a resurrection of the saints. At the judgment, there's going to be a resurrection of the wicked. And so we have two different books, Old and New Testament, coming into complete alignment. And so our timeline thus far is we have a treaty that begins a seven-year period of time. Halfway through, the sacrilegious object by the Antichrist is set up. We have the seals happening here. We have the judgments of God happening here. The second coming in the battle of Armageddon and the resurrection of the saints. At that time, the thousand-year reign of Christ begins. And then the judgment with the second resurrection and then on into eternity. That's where we are in our timeline. And so again, the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture view is heavily based on Paul's writings. Most of the scriptures that we use to defend that comes from Paul and by picking and choosing different verses that, uh, in his writings to support that position. And it's through that Paul lens that many uh, argue for the rapture happening before the tribulation begins. And so a question arises for me as we look at the scriptures is this, who should we be interpreting the Bible through, the lens of Paul or the lens of Jesus Christ? That's a question. You know, if we look at whose authority matters more, would it be Paul or would it be Jesus? And in my mind, I would say it would be Jesus Christ because he's God of everything, right? He's Lord of all. And it would be from Jesus and through the Old Testament prophets and the other apostles and disciples in the day of Christ that Paul would have learned about these end time events. And so the answer in my mind is that we interpret Paul through the lens of Jesus. And so the ultimate question is, is then if the rapture doesn't happen first, where does it fit in? Where does it come into picture? That we see a rapture-like events in Daniel. We see rapture-like events in Revelation. We also, you know, see rapture-like events in Paul. And so the question is, if we're going to interpret Paul through the lens of Jesus Christ, does Jesus describe a rapture-like event in his teaching about the end times in Matthew 24? And the answer is absolutely, unequivocally, yes. So let's look at Paul's rapture verse again, the one that many quote to describe the rapture, and then we'll look at Christ's rapture passage. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, Paul says this, We tell you this directly from the Lord. We are still living when the Lord returns. We'll not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So that's Paul's description of this event called the rapture. In Matthew 24, as Jesus is giving us this timeline, after the birth pain signs, after the persecution of the Antichrist, after the revelation of the Antichrist, after the signs in the heavens that Jesus says will be the indicators of my return, here's what Jesus says, Matthew 24, beginning in verse 30. He says, Then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens. There will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a mighty blast of a trumpet. They will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. 
And so when we compare the two, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17 from Paul and Jesus, Matthew 24, 30 through 31, we see Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that Jesus is going to descend from heaven. Jesus in Matthew 24 says he's going to descend from heaven. Paul says there are angels involved in this event. Jesus says there's angels involved in this event. Paul says there's going to be a trumpet announcement. Jesus in Matthew 24 says there's a trumpet announcement. Paul declares there's going to be some type of resurrection or rapture. And Jesus in Matthew 24 declares that there'll be some resurrection or rapture. So again, Paul and Jesus both, talking about the end times, mention the dissension from heaven, angels, trumpet call, along with the resurrection of the saints. So the most logical conclusion, just by comparing Scripture with Scripture, is that the rapture verse, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, is Paul's way of describing what Jesus already informed us was going to happen at the second coming in Matthew 24. Both 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17 and Matthew 24, 30 through 31 are speaking of the very same event. It's the same thing. This resurrection of the saints. And Jesus places it at the second coming as he's coming down to the earth. Paul places it at the second coming. John, talking about the first and second resurrections, places the first resurrection at the second coming. And Jesus even, or Daniel even, places the resurrections happening at the Messiah's coming. So if it isn't clear by now that the rapture cannot be here, cannot be here, but must take place here, the resurrection of the saints, then Paul's final statement, his final timeline in 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 25 is going to nail the nail in the coffin. It's going to seal the deal. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. He says, there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he what? Comes back. After that, after what? After he comes back, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom of God or kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power, for Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. So in this passage, Paul is saying, we're going to be raised when he comes back. He's going to reign until all his enemies are destroyed at the judgment, and then eternity begins in perfect alignment with what we've already discovered. You see, the end of the world, as we envision it, as we think about the end of the world, it's not a one-time event. It's not like someone's going to hit the button on a nuclear bomb and the world's just going to be gone. The end of the world is a series of events that centers around the second coming of Jesus Christ and then the birth of the new heavens and the new earth and the setting up of the kingdom of God. And before the end can be accomplished, Jesus must return, according to Daniel, according to Jesus, according to Paul, and according to John. And it's at that point, at his return, that we're going to be resurrected or raptured and receive the fullness of his promises. And you see, that is the blessed hope. When we talk about having hope as Christians, that is the hope. The return of Christ is what we're waiting for. That's what we're yearning for. That's what we're longing for. That is the blessed hope of the church, is Jesus coming back and setting up the kingdom, making all things new. Now, in conclusion, some uh, that have studied this at great length will ask a question, and it, it's, a, it's a simple question, and it's this. It's that if the church is not appointed to experience the wrath of God because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, Jesus paid our debt, 
our sin debt. So the church, followers of Christ, are not destined to pay for their sins in hell because of what Christ did for us. Why would God allow the church to go through this tribulation period, specifically because the last three half, according to John, is when God pours out his judgment on the earth and, more specifically, his wrath on the earth? Why would God allow the church to go through that? I want to look at two things very quickly. The first thing is I want to look at a passage in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. This is what Peter says. He says, God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Later, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. Verse 9, this is the key. It says, So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. You see, Jesus made it clear the church is going to suffer severe persecution from the Antichrist and from Satan in the end times. We can see suffering happen even now in the Middle East. We look at the, the Christians that have been displaced from Syria and many countries. We see this happen all the time. This is nothing new. But Peter here is putting our fears to rest as it pertains to the end times because Peter says that God's people are going to be protected when he rains down judgment on the earth. That we're not going to be included in his judgment. We'll be persecuted by the enemy, but we will not be harmed by God. It's going to be like Noah and like Lot. God doesn't need to take us to heaven to protect us. He's got a great track record. He's done that time and time again. Just think about the nation, uh, uh, the land of Egypt, when Israel was in Egypt. God rained down ten plagues on, the, on Egypt. And while Egypt was getting all tore up, Israel remained completely unharmed. And why was that? It's because Israel had the blood of the lamb plastered on the doorposts of their homes. So they remained untouched by the most severe of God's judgment. And we as the church, according to the word of God, are also sealed on the doorposts of our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so when God rains down his wrath, rains down his judgment, we have no fear to experience that. And even John in the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 12 gives us a picture of God protecting his people for that last three and a half years. Talks about him preparing a special place in the wilderness to save us from that period of time. God will protect us when his wrath is poured out. That's number one. The second thing I want to look at is Daniel chapter 12 verses 9 and 10. The angel giving Daniel this prophetic vision says this. It says, but he said, go now, Daniel, for what I have said is kept secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, cleansed, and refined by these trials. But the wicked will continue in their wickedness, and none of them will understand. Only those who are wise will know what it means. God is going to permit the church to go through a, at least a portion of these end time events to purify his bride and reveal the true people. See, not only did Jesus encourage us to endure in Matthew 24, but in almost every letter to the seven churches in Revelation, Daniel writes uh, the, these letters from Christ to these churches. Jesus makes a statement to every one of them. It says, to those who are victorious, 
to those who obey Christ, to those who hold fast the faith, to those who endure. And he's writing that because it will be those who endure that are revealed as being a part of the true church of Jesus Christ. Jesus and Paul both talk about this falling away, this rebellion from the faith during this time. And in the tribulation, our faith is going to be put to the test. God is going to use this period of time to expose those who are Christian in name only, but not in reality. Some who profess Christ are going to follow false teachers. Some who are professing Christ or professing to be Christians will be persuaded by this great delusion that comes across the earth. Some who profess to be Christians are going to take the mark of the beast and align themselves with Satan and his antichrist. And some are going to fall away simply because they stop believing. But the true church, those of true faith, who love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, are going to overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, Revelation 6, 9. See, when you just compare the Scripture with Scripture, when you look at the overall theme and story of the Bible, when you see what the Bible says, not what someone says the Bible says, as I have over years of study, I've come to this place in my life where I don't see the Left Behind movies as being an adequate description of the end-time events or what is to come. I don't see the pre-tribulational rapture as being uh, an event that is described in the Scripture. But however, like I said last week, there are some people out there that are smarter than me, more educated than me, who hold very strongly to these different viewpoints. They may be correct. It would be pretty sweet if we got to go before all the bad stuff happens. I mean, that would be a nice, I'd want to upgrade my ticket to first class on that one. But uh, I just don't think that that's the case. I don't think that's what's going to happen. But the important thing is, is that God's will is that none would perish. Why? Because everyone matters to God. And he's tasked the church with us now with this gospel ministry. He wants to give everybody an opportunity to be saved, to repent of their sin and turn to Christ, to live according to his will and desire, not according to our sinful desires. So wherever you land, whether you're going to still hold to the pre-trib position or, or mid-trib or post-trib, wherever you land, there's one thing is for sure. God is in control. He's in control. And whoever, however it goes down, we can trust in his faithfulness. We're going to close by reading a little parable from Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 13, 34 through 37. Jesus says this. He says, The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do, and he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You, too, must keep watch, for you don't know when the master of the household will return, in the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you what I say to everyone, watch for him. Church, we need to keep our eyes on the sky. As followers of Jesus Christ, understanding that our days are short, we need to be about our Father's business. He's given us a job to do, and we don't have long to do it. We have less time now than what they had after Christ ascended into heaven. And our mission as a church is to engage people where they are and lead them to becoming fully developed followers of Jesus Christ. That's why we hold events. That's why we have ministries like My Brother's Keeper and, and City Walk. Because if we are working for the Lord, we won't be wallowing. 
If we are searching, we won't be found sleeping. If we are busy, we won't get bored and dissatisfied with our faith. And this is the point of studying the end times, about looking at these things. Because the reality of the end of days encourages us to do three things. One, to be a watcher. If you're watching, you won't become apathetic and lukewarm. You'll be on the ready. You'll be reminded every day of the importance of your walk with Christ and your purpose as a Christian. Number two, we're encouraged to be righteous, to hold fast the faith, to live what you believe, to not give in to sin or get caught up with the philosophies and temptations of the world, having worldly priorities. When you know that you're going to have company over and your guests could be arriving at any time, what do you do? You clean up your house. You put on your best. You want to uh, provide the best experience for those coming to your home. And we have to have that mentality because Jesus is coming soon. We need to clean up the house of our life. We need to put on our best. Not get caught up just looking the part, but actually what counts and living the part. Putting on the armor of God and living according to his will and desires. It's not about having our names and headlines or being popular or being accepted by the world. It's about being found worthy of salvation and the calling of Jesus Christ. It's about having an authentic relationship with our Savior. It's about bearing each other's burdens and encouraging each other to keep moving forward and keep the faith encourages us to be righteous. And the third thing is that it encourages us to be on mission. He's given us a job to do. We need to be making disciples. We need to be telling people the gospel, sharing what Jesus Christ has done for them on the cross. We need to be inviting them into a relationship with their Savior and inviting them to come experience what God is doing here at Vertical Life Church. So as many people as we can see, come to Christ, will come to Christ and respond to the gospel so that they, in the last day, will be able to endure, to overcome, and enjoy the salvation of our God when this age comes to a close. Our hope is not in the rapture. Our hope is in Jesus, for he is our prize. He is our hope. Daniel 12.1 says, There will be a time of anguish greater than any since nations first came into existence. But at that time, every one of your people whose name is written in the book will be rescued. Jesus is on a rescue mission. He's coming to save us. He's coming to redeem us. And all those who place their faith and trust in Christ will stand victorious. We'll be those who are caught up, resurrected, raptured, and welcomed into eternal life. Let's bow our heads in this place today. So we go into a time to respond to the word of God. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. Ask yourself this question, what kind of servant are you? Are you the sober servant? Or are you the sleeping servant? Have you been watching, living righteously? Are you doing the job that God and Jesus have given us to do as the church of Jesus Christ? Or are you just coasting through life, waiting for the rapture to take you out of your misery? Do you have a real relationship with Jesus? Are you in fellowship with your creator? Do you hear his voice? Do you sense his presence? Do you wake up loving him and having joy in your heart for him? Or are you just flirting with religion, hoping the scale balances in your favor in the end? 
because the time of testing is going to come. If you've grown up in church and you've been a Christian for a long time, does your life reflect that you believe what you say you believe? If not, then today is the day your life changes. Today is the day you give your life again to Jesus Christ. Again, with every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. I'm just going to encourage us in this place as we are one family, we are one body, we are the church of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna ask you to pray this prayer with me. And that together, this would be our heart's prayer in this place today. Pray this with me. Say, Father in heaven, you are our prize. Jesus, forgive us for living for ourselves and being consumed with the things of this world that in the end won't mean a thing. Renew our passion. Give us a burning desire to follow you. Give us a great vision for our families, our neighborhoods, our city, our state, and our country. My heart is yours today. Where you lead, I will follow. What you assign, I will accomplish. Till every heart sings your praise. For you are worthy. You are Lord. In Jesus' name.